0: The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, June 8th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Today, James Comey testified before Congress. And in a sentence, I will tell you what he said that matters most. Then I will do an entire show telling you what else he said, what other people said, what some senators said, maybe some guy in the media, maybe a relative of Trump. That's all good fun. love that part. It's in the spiel. Let us take away one bold, unrefuted piece of evidence. Here it is. The President of the United States floated a request to James Comey that he quash the investigation into Russian meddling in U.S. elections. And then James Comey was fired for not following through on that request. You may say two things of me. One, how is that a revelation? And two, wait, you said evidence. How's that evidence? Those two questions are related. One, it's not really a revelation. We know it from Comey's memo and press reports about the incident and previous reports about Comey's mindset that Comey was fired over Russia is not a revelation to us for the same reason that it's not a revelation to Comey, as he told Senator Dianne Feinstein. Do you believe the Russia investigation played a role? In why I was fired? Yes. Yes, because I've seen the president say so. So right no revelation. We didn't hear stuff that was new, but the way we heard it was important. It was spoken under oath. And that brings me to the evidentiary part of it. Comey confirmed all the key details of the methods and motives of his firing, some additional add-ons, as the president told to Lester Holt. And by doing it under oath in front of Congress, it's called evidence that moves this forward. And that's important. Is it a crime? Don't know. Is it a high crime or misdemeanor? remains to be seen. I'll tell you what it is, and I'll quote Comey in doing so. It's a very big deal. On the show today, a further analysis of the Comey testimony in the spiel. But first, here's the return of Professor John Pfaff. Yesterday, in part one of our interview, we talked about why the conventional wisdom on mass incarceration is wrong. Today, real solutions for reducing the prison population. Step one, don't violate the Logan Act by talking to the Russians before taking office. Okay, that's not one of his recommendations. Listen to the ideas that are. Joining me now is John Faff. He is a Fordham Law professor. Part one of our interview about mass incarceration, arrest rates, and what we can do about it, that aired yesterday. It was good. This is going to be better. There are a couple of aspects of harsh sentences that I subscribe to. I, I don't know if you do. You're probably right. I'm wrong. Some of these are gut, but I could maybe explain a couple intellectually. You always hear about like some guy who kidnaps a girl, and she's underground for 20 years, and this guy always has a past record, and the record's always some sexual crime, that if he were arrested today, he'd be imprisoned prison for 20 years. So- I don't know if on that small specific thing, maybe we've made strides, but it does seem that sentencing for, say, sexually abusing a young person has gotten a stronger sentence. And I would think that society is better off for it. Am I right? So it could be true that every person you describe the, yeah. the kid I just argued by anecdote, right. and I know a professor hates that, but yes.
1: <laughs> so it might be true that every person who commits those crimes has a prior sexual offense. Mm-hmm. But almost everyone with a sexual offense never goes on to do that, right? right? So the Supreme Court's debating this right now. They're they, they hearing that sex offenders are uniquely unable to stop themselves. The person who studied their citing himself has renounced that study and said he, that wasn't the point he's trying to make. If you look at the best statistics that BGS has, 5% of those released for a sex offense go on to commit a subsequent sex offense. Higher than sex offenses committed by non-prior sex offenses, about 1%. But the fact is the pool of non-sex offenders is so much bigger than the pool of sex offenders that actually, if I tell you behind that wall is a guy who committed a second crime, it's a sex offense. What was his first crime? You're better off guessing a non-sex offense than a sex offense. It is very much a hysteria right now about sort of the risk sex offenders pose uh, and and their inability to stop. Uh, and it's led to a series of practices that actually make make the risk of recidivism actually greater. All these residency restrictions designed to make us safe...
0: Yeah, actually so they have so much to live price- with other sex offenders in a trailer park and, and they're told they have no use of society and maybe they figure, well, what do I have to lose?
1: Or Or even... It puts so much stress on their life that their ability to regulate their behavior falters. Like we all, yeah. we all act our worst when we're under a lot of stress, right? So if you take someone who already has the harm from you know the the, the bad acts in the past and, and subject them to tremendous stress, and then they reoffend, and then we act shocked that they did, and put it on them when oftentimes their own policies are making it hard for them to not reoffend even if they don't want to.
0: Okay, here's another area where I think harsh sentences are good. I like them, but you tell me. New York's gun laws, New York City's gun laws. I mean, I I live a relatively safe life. I'm not afraid of guns. If I lived in Chicago, it would be different. But a big reason is that We are really no nonsense with guns. You know, stupid Plexico Burris on the Giants shoots himself and still has to go to jail. All these people fly through LaGuardia. They don't know the rules and maybe they could work a deal. But some of them have gone to jail just by doing what you would do in any other airport, which is to try to check your gun. Can't do it. You're in New York City. You're going to jail. I think this keeps us safe. Am I right about that?
1: I think we do it kind of backwards. Mm -hmm. Longer sentences don't deter. Policing deterrence, the risk of getting caught. That's where deterrence happens. People aren't thinking five, ten years down in the future when they when they do these things, especially People in high crime neighbors who might feel either the need to have a gun for safety or from a sort of cultural pressure to like sort of protect yourself. Uh, so take Boston where they, the police make arrests in something like 6% of all shootings, non-lethal shootings. Chicago is under 10% as well. I don't, I don't know New York City's numbers, right? So policing works. Long sentences don't. Yet when Chicago faced this rash of shootings, the legislature tried to ram through tougher mandatory minimums, but there's no evidence they're trying to get the, the Chicago police to turn their attention to, to guns more. And so, Yes, we should target guns, but if our goal for guns should be deterrence far more than anything else, and deterrence is policing not not
0: punishment. What if prisons, the experience of prisons were radically different? However you would, you know, program a prison. How much of an effect even if we have this many people and they weren't getting out at the rate they're not getting out, if whatever went on inside were much different, how much might that affect crime?
1: So if they're actually truly places of rehabilitation sure. and treatment? Yeah. I think that can make a, a huge impact. I think they make them more expensive. I think we have the money to do it. I don't think we spend that much on on prisons as people think we do. It's about six or seven percent of state budget. So it's not zero, but it's not, you know, some giant behemoth eating up the whole state funding. Yeah, I think I think better designed prisons would be great, but there's plenty of evidence showing the fact that any sort of treatment works better outside confinement than inside confinement. So if we're going to focus on rehabilitation, it'd make a lot more sense to focus on how to provide that in communities rather than in prisons, right? It's especially true given the fact that an important factor for re-entry is maintaining ties with your family, right? And our prisons tend to be scattered away from
0: where the crimes sure, tend to happen. no, one wants, no right? one wants a prison in their backyard. So you put it up in upstate New York and you got these people who are committing uh, crimes in Queens having to travel to upstate New York. They have no money.
1: It's tough. Actually, it's the opposite. Those places... Desperately want the prisons. Right. It's not NIMBY, it's YIMBY. Right? Yeah, yes, yeah. in my backyard, because they view they view the prisons as financial benefits. Which th- there's some, but it's overstated. It's oftentimes the only job left in some of these decimated upstate towns. Not true in New York State any longer, but true in 46 states, is that prisoners count as living where they are incarcerated, not where they come from for the census. Yeah. And so there's all these state reps across the country who, if they didn't have their prisons, they would lose their seats to redistricting because they need those people who can't vote, right, to count as five-fifths of a person. Um, Although in Maine, they can't. In Maine, they can, they can vote, vote in and, and Vermont, they can okay. vote, are
0: the only two there states. Yep. <laughs> See, Vermont, I think Vermont prisons probably will be able to solve our problem. Most people are there for, you know, stealing sap. <laughs> um, you know, we've touched upon this, but I just want to give you a chance to point out the big thing that you point your finger at is prosecutors, prosecutors of a lot of discretion, all the incentives are to over-incarcerate. I think you nailed it. I think this is a problem. I think it's impossible to reform. It is very hard. And I think it's one
1: reason why we've done so little to do it, to, to address it is because you can change the sentencing law. You can, you know, change the cutoff between misdemeanor and felony drug possession, but, but regulating these prosecutors is a very hard thing to do. But there there are steps we can take. We could impose guidelines on the kinds of charges they can file, the kinds of pleas they can accept. New Jersey does this for drug cases. There's these very strict guidelines for for how you plead out a a drug case. Uh, And they're not perfect, but they do allow the state to kind of regulate what local county DAs do. I think another issue that we sort of ignore because it's kind of boring and budgetary, but hugely important, is that prosecutors don't pay for prisons. So if you're a DA and you send, and you're a county official, and your budget comes from the county, and you send this guy to prison with a felony, the state pays for that incarceration. If you send him to jail on a misdemeanor, if you put him on probation for a misdemeanor, that actually comes out of the county budget. Right? So not only do you look tougher on crime to send the guy to prison, you actually it's actually cheaper for your county to send him to prison. It's free. Local things are not. So try to push all those costs back onto the counties. California's tried to do this by certain kinds of nonviolent offenses. If you convict of a felony, they still have to spend their time in county jail to try to make the counties actually get some skin in the game. So I think there are steps we can take to rein in what DAs do, but it's going to require more than just tweaking the laws we have. It's going to require something big and bold and uh, and outside sort of the the scope of just like adjusting the laws we have to here's a law we've never tried before, making making DAs pay, guidelines for charging and pleading, something
0: bigger to, to do it. And finally... I was of the uh, opinion, if you asked me two years ago, I thought that we were shifting a bit societally, not just because I watch a lot of MSNBC, but I I looked at Rand Paul, you know, talking about issues of prison reform. I thought even within the Republican Party, there was like a libertarian strain. Maybe they were arguing the financial angles, but still they were arguing the, we're overly incarcerated angle. They're probably also arguing the civil liberties angle. So I thought that with the classic, you know, liberal opposition to mass incarceration, with a strain in the Republican Party, we're on our way to somewhere. And then Donald Trump comes along and he's ahistoric about crime rates. And he, you know, raises this as a number one issue the danger of criminals at a time when crime is plummeting. And I'm shocked that it resonates so much. Maybe I shouldn't have been. But do you think that the national conversation, given that Trump is in the White House and he rode the issue of crime and scariness to the White House, do you think that the country really is ready to pivot as much as you're suggesting that we need to in order to solve it? I think
1: so. And so I think Trump and his rhetoric and Jeff Sessions and his policies, they are going to be profoundly harmful to policing reform. I think the feds play a bigger role there, sort of a centralizing bully pulpit. I think his sort of decision to walk back all these consent decrees and talk about how, you know, it's just all about respecting cops and not respecting protesters. That's going to be hugely devastating to police reform. Prison reform is a completely different character. It is at the state level, not the federal level, the state and local level. It's been very bipartisan for a very long time. You see the ACLU and the Koch brothers working literally side by side. Like they'll be at conferences, one here, one there, yeah, and sitting yeah. next to each other. So I feel like because what's very interesting about 2016, right? Is you on the one hand you have Trump campaigning on this carnage in America rhetoric, right? At the same time, in about 15 or 16 cities, you have reformist DAs win their elections, yeah. Right? even in red states like Texas, you see in Houston, in Corpus Christi, they elected a defense attorney as a prosecutor. You see in Chicago, elsewhere. Um, but I think my, my the best example is Oklahoma had one of the strongest turnouts for Trump. I think it was like 65 35 for Trump in the end. At the same time, they passed two statewide referendums decriminalizing drugs and shifting the funding from from punishment into treatment and those got like 55 and 56 percent of the vote, right? So, not exactly, you know, there are some Trump voters who are still carnage when they came to the proposition but a lot of Trump voters also voted for these two big statewide propositions to try to rein in prison growth in, in, in Oklahoma. Uh, so, I feel like whatever problems Congress has, and, and Congress is uniquely dysfunctional, I think, compared to, even compared to the states, the states are sort of moving ahead. And, and local districts are electing reformist DAs. States are continuing to pass laws. Texas is, is doing a lot. Texas Guard Union is even in favor of, of reforms. Like You're seeing a lot of actors you might not expect embracing reforms in, in states where you might not expect it to happen.
0: So in general, you're saying that the American carnage uh, rhetoric wasn't as resonant as maybe it seems.
1: Not when it comes to Prison growth. I think yeah. when it comes to policing practices, is me much more important and much more harmful. But prisons is a, is, a, is a different silo of, of reform,
0: right? Because to me, though, well, even on the policing, it seems that you had a politician rattling on about crime, you add media portrayals of criminality, and then you have the third thing, which is actual high crime rates. So we've always had the first two things. But now that the crime rates aren't low, I would think that it wouldn't go as far. I would think if you take out the actual high crime rates, there wouldn't be this need to or perceived need to, you know, take away the consent decrees and doing whatever the Trump administration is doing and emboldening police.
1: The problem we have with crime rates is that people don't understand that they're low. Right. So, but isn't
0: it felt at a certain point? Like, if you knew uh, someone who was killed, that means you act in some way. But if you don't know someone who was killed, it's an abstraction. Yes, I I I understand that some people might be convinced, but it seems much less likely than the than when crime rates are high and people knew murder victims. So, so here's the here's the here's the sort of the the baffling nuance
1: of our of our polls. Right. If you ask Americans, is crime higher today than it was last year? over almost every single year of the, of the crime decline, a majority said, yes, crime is worse this year greater than last year. Like 70% of Americans were saying in the, in the early 2000s, mid 2000s, that it's worse this year than last year when it was actually not. And the sustained drop, 65%, percent saying worse. If you ask the question, like, do you feel safer in your neighborhood? Do you walk home late at night? Are you, doing the, are you like doing, leaving your door unlocked? Are you, you know, parking further away from home? Consistently to say yes, right? So they feel safer, but I feel like the country as a whole over there, wherever there might be, is getting worse. And it's because of the nightly news. There's still always enough murder and violence and kidnappings and arsons to still scare people who don't experience it day to day, but experience it just through through TV. And no, our, our TV is nothing but cop shows and courtroom dramas suggests it still is constantly pervasive concern. What that means for reform, I have no idea, right? People do feel locally safe, and maybe that gives us room to move in a way we didn't have before. Right. Right? But they still feel sort of more nationally afraid. It's very unclear what that really means, for like what's going to be feasible. Uh, but for policing, I think that the presidential sort of bully pulpit was much more important. There's much less agreement about what you do with policing should be tougher or less tough. There's no real agreement for prisons. There's there's generally a left right consensus now that they might not agree on where we should aim for as the ultimate goal. But I think most people agree where
0: we are right now can't possibly be the right the right spot. John Pfaff is the author of Locked In, The True Causes of Mass Incarceration and How to Achieve Real Reform. Professor of Law at Fordham Law School. I always like to plug Fordham. All right, thank you, John. Thank you so much. And Now the spiel. On to the Comey testimony, the testimony about the Russian investigation. You know the Flynn nudge, the hey, we got a real type of thing going on, getting down here. And he said, "quote,
1: because I've been very loyal to you, very loyal. We had that thing, you know.
0: Did that arouse your curiosity as what quote that thing was? In fact, Comey was aroused." By Trump's thing. Who wouldn't be? I'm sure Trump regarded it as a glorious and upright thing, whereas Comey regarded Trump's thing as sad and decrepit. Oh, we're talking about loyalty. The thing is loyalty here, people. That thing, meaning that understanding between them, which Trump seemed to think Comey understood, but which Comey was extremely conscious to let Trump know he did not understand it in the way Trump thought he understood it. Trump's understanding went like this. And this one, don't screw me. Comey's understanding. I'm not your beauty pageant contestant, Mr. President. Comey, unlike the other members of the intelligence community, was the one guy who took Trump's ham-handed, yet short-fingered, insinuations seriously. Remember yesterday, Dan Coats, DNI, Mike Rogers, NSA, they testified and they said they didn't feel pressured by Trump. Well, to remind you, here's Mike Rogers. And to the best of my recollection, during that same period of service, I do not recall ever feeling pressured to do so. Now, that could mean that they weren't pressured or that could mean that they're tough dudes and they weren't feeling the heat. Comey said something different. I took
1: it as a direction. Right. I mean, as the president of the United States, with me alone saying, I hope this, I took it as this is what he wants he, me to do. Now, I, didn't, I didn't obey that, but that's the way I took it.
0: And of this, Donald Trump lashed out on Twitter. Sadly, it wasn't the Donald Trump we were looking for. It was Donald Trump Jr., Basically said, there is no possibility that my dad was being subtle. He tweeted, knowing my father for 39 years, when he orders or tells you to do something, there is no ambiguity, you will know exactly what he means. Yes, you know exactly what he meant when he told us, He'd build a wall or not cut Medicaid or pay all his contractors or lock her up or label China currency manipulator or move the embassy to Jerusalem or drain the swamp or work so hard he'd never play golf or replace Obamacare with something terrific. When he told us that, there was no ambiguity. Actually, Don Jr. is making a more subtle, though no less stupid, point. What he is asserting is that when Donald Trump gives an order, he does so boldly and brashly. It's the only kind of order Donald Trump gives. But that doesn't mean that everything Donald Trump wants someone else to do is via this kind of dictate. Example, he wanted to have sex with that TV hostess lady that he talked about in the bus with Billy Bush, but didn't tell her, hey, I want to have sex with you. What he did was he went furniture shopping. So he knows subtlety. The conversation with Comey, that is the furniture shopping of investigations. Hey, want to buy a divan? Hey, Mike Flynn's a nice guy. Or maybe Donald Trump Jr. is saying, when my dad wants to obstruct justice, by God, you will know it. He will flat out say, you there, go, obstruct justice, Jim. The Trump family, the Trump lawyer, sympathetic Trump senators, did not do much to knock Comey off his message. Didn't do much to do anything to change the basic point that the president fired Comey to effect the Russia investigation. That's all he alleged in open session. Did not charge him with a crime. Comey didn't just said that trump did what he said he did and noted that it was indeed a very big deal comey was a fine witness dare i say at times relatable
1: his memory showed him that did not happen and i think he pulled up short that's just a guess but i I, I have a lot of conversations with humans over the years i think i would have had some curiosity if it had been about me.
0: i've had a lot of conversations with humans over the years (laughs) me too But Comey does have flaws. For instance, like Galactus, destroyer of worlds, Comey hates matter. Oh no, Jim Comey hates it when you say matter.
1: Probably the only other consideration that I guess I can talk about in an open setting is that at one point the Attorney General had directed me not to call it an investigation, but instead to call it a
0: matter. Matter can only be changed, not created or destroyed. So this request, in turn, destroyed Hillary Clinton. Don't call it matter, mattered. You could argue that this request, don't call it an investigation, along with that tarmac meeting with Bill Clinton, convinced Comey that Loretta Lynch was not to be trusted and spurred him on to be very, very public about all the aspects of the Hillary Clinton investigation. More open than he would usually be, more open than she would want him to be. Was that a bad call? Is that what I'm saying? But somehow this Trump call is a good call? Am I being colored by partisanship? I actually came away with one big insight into James Comey, who he is, and colored is the right word, because I think Comey is a man of black and whites. He sees the world in black and white, and he wants to always do the right thing, and he thinks the world is black and white. So he sees doors uh, on a continuum of extremes. The doors are labeled speak or conceal. They're on opposite ends. That's his understanding of the world. His law enforcement, head FBI guy, kind of makes sense. But Comey didn't become a white knight suddenly. When he was dealing with that gray area called Hillary Clinton's ethics, he couldn't stand out in relief. But against Trump, against the inky blackness of all that's in the Trump orbit from which no light can escape, there James Comey shines indeed. And it's a very big deal. That's it for today's show. Gist producer Chris Barubi has got some fuzz on it. Mary Wilson best produces The Gist in closed session. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He's seen the tweet about picking bales of cotton. Lordy, he hopes to pick a bale of cotton. The Gist. You know what? I, it just hit me. I think I've just figured out that McCain question. Nope. Nope. Lost it. Might have been Sunstroke. And thanks for listening.